some people are just born with confidence. They just walk into the room and they're confident. And it's not that natural or innate for me. I have to work to be confident. Confidence comes from just practice and hard work and knowing that I've done something that might be even harder than the thing I'm just about to do. And so that got me into the psyche of, well, if I just do hard things, then it'll help me be confident. That was Nargia Vardana. At the age of 17, she published a math theorem and then attended Stanford University to follow her love for STEM. After working at Google, Nargia decided she wanted to try something new. She ended up working at multiple fintech and healthcare startups in the early stages and eventually entered into venture capital. In 2017, she was included in the prestigious 30 under 30 list. Today, she is a partner at Maveron. In this episode, Anargia talks about her lifelong love for STEM. She shares how she finds the strongest leaders through healthcare startups and how doing one challenging thing every year positively impacts her self-confidence. This is Daniel Sachs, president and co-founder of AppDirect, and it's time to decode customer healthcare, investing, and diversifying STEM for the future. Welcome to Decoding Digital, a podcast for innovators looking to thrive in the digital economy. I'm your host, Daniel Sachs, and I'll sit down with other founders, CEOs, and changemakers to decode the trends that are transforming the way we work. Let's decode. I'm thrilled to be joined by my friend, Anargia. She's a unique experience and perspective around the consumer healthcare space. So excited to dig in more there and decode. Welcome, Anargia. Thank you. So I know at the age of 17, you published a math theorem that set you towards a lifelong love for STEM. Tell me about what led you to having that passion for math and STEM, and how did you develop that passion so young? Yeah, great question. And I think it played such a foundational role in who I am today. And so I love talking about it. I grew up in a household with me and my younger sister. She's six years younger. And my dad is an engineer. My mom stayed at home with us. And my dad really just wanted to work on engineering, math, science projects. That's what he knew best. And that's what he wanted to spend his time doing those things with his kids. And so that's what we did at home. We built things. We did a lot of math. We explored a lot of science endeavors and projects. And that got me into an early love of just the STEM field in general. And you know, nowadays, we talk a lot about getting girls into STEM, getting underrepresented folks into STEM. I was lucky enough to grow up in a household where it didn't seem weird to me that I was a girl in STEM. It just what I did. And that love kind of turned into going deep into some specific areas. And I went to a high school called Jesuit High School in Portland, Oregon, where I grew up where I was lucky enough to have some amazing math teachers. And, you know, these were teachers who were kind of having the skill set to go beyond calculus. I was able to take classes like number theory and discrete math in high school, which again, just opened my mind to the possibilities and creativity that math holds, which I don't think a lot of people associate like math with creativity. And through that, I got kind of plugged into the science fair circuit. I was a science fair kid. You know, some kids are athletes. I was a science fair kid. That was my thing. And I always did projects in the field of math, specifically focusing on number theory. I was obsessed with prime numbers. I still love prime numbers and have weird things. Like I set my alarm to like prime numbers uh, in the morning for when I have to wake up. But I got to go really deep, work with some amazing number theorists and uh, participate in the Intel science fair circuit, a couple other science fair circuits. And through that research and work, um, 
was working with a professor in the Netherlands called Dr. Lenstra. And while I was working on some research projects for him, came across a pattern that I said, hey, this is repeating itself. What, what's going on here? And he said, can you prove that this pattern holds forever? And so I was able to provide an explicit proof for it, which then turned into a new theorem in number theory, which was super exciting and was able to publish that as a teenager, which was incredible. And I think a big boost for my own confidence in continuing to be in the science and STEM areas in general. I mean, I can already hear the passion just coming through around STEM and math. And <laughs> I think it is inspirational because we grow up sometimes valuing you know, athletics or valuing certain things. But the fact that I can hear it in your voice, the kind of cool factor and the fun around STEM is something that is really beneficial. And at that age, did you see it as a career path or did you see it more as just something that you were interested in? So at that age, I actually thought I was going to be a mathematician or some kind of researcher when I grew up. That was a passion of mine. My grandfather, so my late paternal grandfather, was a scientific author and a professor. And so I really saw a lot of exciting things about what he was doing, right? His job was to educate young people. It was to research deep problems. It was to think about them. It was to write about them. And he was somewhat of a role model to me. So I thought my career path would kind of move along that direction in some way. And then I came to the Bay Area to go to Stanford for my undergraduate studies and quickly learned that there's a personality side of me that wants to see my work in the real world faster than 10, 20, 50, 60 years. And I realized that a path of research would maybe lead me towards a lifestyle where the work wouldn't really come to see the light of day until decades after I was doing that work. And for my own selfish reasons, I thought I wanted to do something that kind of came out faster. And the timing was perfect, right? I was lucky enough to be at Stanford when the iPhone launched, the first ever iPhone. Like I was in Silicon Valley when all of these super exciting things were happening. I remember an alumni coming to some random lunch that they were hosting for undergrads, recruiting people for Facebook. And this was the early days of Facebook. And so I just happened to be at the right place at the right time where I started thinking like, hey, I can work in science and technology, but I can work in a way such that what I do sees the light of day today, tomorrow, like in this really fast iterative culture. And that's kind of what got me into the tech space. And I noticed on your website, you have a big quote that says, do one thing every day that scares you. What inspired that? I started doing this thing every year where I wanted to do something really hard every year, something that I thought might not be possible. And it could be anything from running a marathon, which I'd, I ran my first marathon my senior year of college, or it could be doing a very challenging trip somewhere with like, you know, minimal supplies, you know, whatever it may be. But I got into that because someone once asked me, they're like, how do you build confidence? And it was such a nebulous question for me because I feel like some people are just born with confidence. They just walk into the room and they're confident. And it's not that natural or innate for me. I have to work to be confident. And I didn't have an answer for that question. And I thought about it and I talked to many people about it. I read about it and I kind of reflected and I realized for me, confidence comes from just practice and hard work and knowing that I've done something that might be even harder than the thing I'm just about to do. And so that got me into the psyche of, well, if I just do hard things, then it'll help me be confident. And that could be tough conversations, whether personal or professional, that could be something physical. So I've just kind of gotten into that mentality. And Daniel, you'll appreciate this. Right before the end of my maternity leave, we took both the kids, so two-year-old and four-month-old, to India and back 
And that was hard. <laughs> we had a 15-hour leg from San Francisco to Dubai. And I was like, this is my hard thing for the year. Like, if I can do this, I can do anything. That's impressive. So obviously, you've had an impressive career in technology, including Google and now in venture. But maybe we'd love to get a sense of what drove you toward venture and then maybe kind of share a little bit of your passion areas that you're investing in now. Yeah, absolutely. So when I left Stanford, I went to work at Google, kind of did the whole campus recruiting thing. Felt like it was such a great transition from college life to Google life. And culturally, they do a lot of coaching and mentoring and the free food and stuff helped as well to transition into adulthood. Learned a ton at Google, worked on the core bread and butter like AdWords, Google's you know biggest revenue driver, and worked with some phenomenal, talented product folks, business folks, engineers, and cemented my passion to be in technology for the rest of my career. I didn't really know what venture capital was then, so that was still distant for me. But what I did see was tons of my friends from Stanford going to startups, including my then boyfriend, now husband. And I would talk to these friends and just see the pace at which they were working and learning and kind of you know in awe of this 23-year-old at a startup playing such a critical role in the startup's success. And I caught the bug. I wanted to have that. I wanted to be a part of that. I wanted to hustle. I wanted to learn. I wanted to move at that pace. And you know, I remember going to one of my VPs at Google and just feeling so torn up about it. And he was and still is a mentor and a friend. And I said, look, like I could do this whole startup thing. And he said, you know what? You're always going to wonder. I should have done it. I should have done it now's a great time. Just like go do it. And Google will always be here for you, which was exactly what I needed to hear. And so I jumped ship after three years, tried my hand in the startup world, learned a lot, learned a lot of what not to do, learned how to navigate really process design is what, what I call it, like starting from scratch and having nothing. I mean, I did everything from figuring out what insurance people should have to writing the first product specs for different apps. And so it was really cool. And in that startup world is when I first got exposed to venture capital, learned about what VCs are, how they fund startups, how they advise them, take board seats, whatever it may be, and was super interested by it. So I said, let me explore what this is and was lucky enough to have a few friends working in the space, met a couple different folks and did a few projects with a few different VCs. And one thing led to another and I joined the Maveron team in 2015 so I'll be celebrating my seven-year anniversary at Maveron this November, which is crazy because I think, Daniel, when you and I first met, I had just started or maybe just a few months into it. So seven years has been an amazing ride. I've learned a ton, You know, work with amazing partners and entrepreneurs at Maveron. We're a consumer-only fund, so we only invest in D2C businesses. That's a pretty broad mandate. That's everything from e-commerce, fintech, health tech, social apps, education technology. And I focus entirely on our consumer healthcare. So I started off as a generalist and over the last couple of years have focused entirely on healthcare and absolutely love it. I love, love what I do, love who I do it with. And it really does come full circle because selfishly, there's nothing more gratifying than investing in something and seeing that thing in the real world, making a positive impact on the lives of hopefully tons and tons of people. Yeah, it's interesting. And a lot of the listeners here have spoke to and heard from a lot of B2B people, you know, AfterX's B2B company. So there's a ton of focus on decoding digital around B2B, but I thought it would be really interesting to get your perspective on the consumer landscape. And I think a lot of it is that there's obviously been a proliferation of consumerization of the enterprise and, you know, the demand for better product experiences. I think one of the things I would love to get a sense of, and I find this and it's hard for people to describe, but 
as an engineer, I think so many people have pride in what they're building. Mm-hmm. And what I've always found is that when you're interviewing engineers, a lot of the excitement that they have is knowing that a friend of theirs, you know, uses their product or understands the brand or affiliates with it, or knowing that a certain number of people, you know, like a million people have used AdWords or, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah. But there's that like passion, which I assume leads to being able to recruit top talent and innovate. And I think even more so, you know, healthcare, oftentimes people have like a very personal attachment to it through their families or their own health. So wanted to kind of start on the softer side of consumer health and the areas in which you invest. But tell me how much does like the initial vision of that entrepreneur that you're talking to matter and how powerful are the stories that drive those visions? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'll start off by saying, you know, the consumer health care mandate that I cover is huge, right? We're a small team. We have a lot to do. So within consumer healthcare, I'm looking at everything. And let me clarify a little bit what I mean by consumer healthcare. So in healthcare, ideally, the payer is paying. Ideally, the consumer is not paying out of pocket for whatever treatment they're getting or whatever service they're getting in the healthcare system. But what I mean by consumer is that I want consumers, so regular people, to say, I love blank. I use blank. Blank helped me pay my healthcare bills or you know whatever it may be. And so there's a couple of different interesting flows for customer acquisition in the consumer healthcare world. A lot of it is that B2B acquisition. So the company may acquire a provider and acquire users through a pediatrician, for example. So a pediatrician may say, you know, I'm getting a lot of children who are coming with um, pediatric anxiety. Sadly, there's a rise in that. I don't have the bandwidth to take that on, or I don't have the skill set right now to take that on. Let me refer you to a startup that is offering a service that is going to give you immediate access to someone who can support you and your family with pediatric anxiety. So we're seeing a lot of those models. But at the end of the day, the consumer does know that they are using the service and they talk about it. So I'm looking at companies across the spectrum in healthcare. I have investments in mental health, like I just mentioned, rare disease, women's health, and then within women's health, kind of some different subdivisions, everything's from like IVF and fertility to menopause and everything in between. And I have an investment in the kind of intersection of fintech and healthcare. So think about healthcare billing. And sadly, the number one reason why Americans go into bankruptcy is because of a medical bill. So are there ways to prevent that? So pretty broad mandate in healthcare. And the exciting thing is that there is just so much we can do to make the experience even marginally better for people. And it can be actually life-changing, which is quite inspiring. It's an awesome time to be in this space. Incredible. And like when you meet those initial entrepreneurs with ideas like across the spectrum, what are they excited about, especially these days? Like what's the next frontier? Yeah. And I just realized after you said that I didn't answer one part of your question, which is like, what are these entrepreneurs talking about? What's the passion and the mission that's getting me excited? And you actually hit it on the head when you asked the question, which is like, for so many of these folks, the story is really, really personal. And it's personal for me too, when I invest, right? After my first baby, I had a C-section and then I got a $135,000 bill that they said I have to pay. And I was like, wait, hold up. I have insurance. What's happening? And of course, they'd made a mistake. They hadn't billed my insurance. They'd billed my husband's insurance and this and that happened and it got resolved. But you know, even just through the experience of like being pregnant, having a complicated pregnancy, having a complicated delivery and recovery, you begin to see all these areas in which the healthcare system, the American healthcare system has cracks and opportunities for innovation and for making it better. And that's usually the story that comes through with the entrepreneur. They are deeply committed to 
filling some crack and realizing that that could be a huge business and impact hundreds of millions of lives. And areas in which people are building, I mean, it's huge. Sadly, the pandemic showed a very massive gap in mental health. And this is for children, adults, everyone. Loneliness, which I think people were already identifying before, became even more pronounced with the pandemic that has taken a deep toll on mental health. And then you add on the layers of children not going to school, having to learn through Zoom, not being able to make friends, bullying increasing online. So mental health is a massive area in which we're spending a ton of time in at Mavron, not just me, but some of my other partners as well. And we're looking at it across the spectrum. And then I think another really interesting area that people talk about all the time is like primary care, the basic entry point to health care. There's the ongoing joke of like millennials don't have a primary care physician. I don't think we do. But where is the entry point for when something slightly is wrong? Who do you call? Who do you talk to? For a lot of people, it's the ER. It's urgent care. And that's not good for the system. It's not good for the load of the ER. They should be solving actual real challenges, not just, I think I have the flu and I need something. But it's not largely solved for. And everything about it is a pain. Everything from like, I can't schedule anything for like four weeks out and it's Tuesday at 2 p.m. Like, how is that going to work? So there's a lot of cool places that founders are building in that are really going to flip how healthcare is in the next couple of years. It sounds like overwhelming. Like there's so many (laughs) incredible problems out there to solve. And it seems like you're looking at all these problems and how do you choose between one or the other? It's a great question. What I like to do is I like to have a point of view on a couple different subsects, like some pillars that I'm excited about. I shared a few, mental health, primary care. Some others include, you know, the idea that you know, we can do really complex brain surgery, really complex heart surgery, but we are really, really far behind on preventative. How do we keep someone from needing that heart surgery or that brain surgery, whatever it may be? So kind of the diet side of things, the nutrition side of things. But, you know, I identify a few verticals I'm excited about, dive deep into them, have a point of view, have a thesis on them, and then map out what that space is like and try to find the best early stage. So I invest in seed and series A. So try to find the best early stage entrepreneurs working in there and meet people. You're right. There's a lot happening. So it can sometimes feel overwhelming. What's also exciting is that some of the entrepreneurs will end up coming together into one specific space. So you invest in one company, it may inch towards something else. So you may be solving the dietary side of things by investing in the women's health business because sometimes those things can go hand in hand. But I think the best way to think about it is every year there's going to be one to two phenomenal entrepreneurs working in consumer healthcare, building in consumer healthcare. My job is to try and meet them and to get to know them and see if there's an opportunity to partner and be a part of their journey for whatever they're going to build. And at that seed stage, right? It's so early. It may be hard to know where they are and who they are. What do you do to find them? You're asking the sourcing question, which is a core part of our job. And I think an art and science that is ever evolving, you know, how do we source everything from relationships with other investors who are earlier in the funnel than us, our own founders, our own entrepreneurs in our portfolio are often generous and kind enough to send us other entrepreneurs with who they think are awesome. Other folks in our network, such as, you know, someone like you who are really plugged in with Silicon Valley and founders and entrepreneurs and people come to you for advice and say, hey, I'm building a consumer company, give me a call. And then a lot of it is thesis-based work. Like I mentioned, kind of mapping out what the space is, saying like, hey, I would love to see a company that's doing this, this, and this with this type of go-to-market. Let me go see who is close to building that. 
And also the beauty of this is like, maybe someone's not building it, but I know a great healthcare operator and I can partner them with this other, you know, maybe doctor who's working in the field. Can we put those two folks together and can we, you know, incubate something? Can we seed something in that way? But sourcing is always evolving. And I think the big change from 10 years ago, which I was not in venture 10 years ago, but speaking with my partners who were, is that, you know, there's not as much information asymmetry as there was then. Like the internet exists, tons of information is out there. A lot of companies are known. So you kind of have to go earlier and earlier to figure out like, hey, this person is leaving this company and they have an idea on this. I think they may build this. Like, let me go talk to them now. So it's an evolving thing. And I think that's part of what makes this job fun. You have to be creative. Yeah, really exciting. And I've been really passionate about mental health for quite some time. And I think with the advent of social media, there's a realization to me about the potential for addiction. And as you mentioned, all other things like anxiety and bullying, and that definitely became more pronounced during COVID. But yeah, I definitely think there's an introspection, of probably many technologists, particularly in social media, about some of the negative impacts of what we're creating. And what's your view as you're looking at the mental health space on the balance between some of the challenges that exist in the technologies we create versus some of the opportunities for technologies to solve those problems and new problems? Yeah, it's something I think about a lot. And the best analogy I can um, share is, you know how with smoking cigarettes, it'll have something that says like nicotine is hazardous to health. And then if you're buying like a bottle of wine at the grocery store, they have the sign with the pregnant cartoon saying like, don't drink alcohol if you're pregnant or whatever. There is knowledge and awareness that smoking cigarettes could be hazardous to your health. There is knowledge and awareness that alcohol comes with its risks. And I think even in the US and, and certainly in other countries that are, have been later to adopt technology, we are just in the early innings of understanding how technology can be hazardous to our health. Yeah, we talk about it. Yeah, we talk about how you know, social media can make you feel worse about yourself, especially for like young girls when it comes to like body image and things like that. Yes, there are studies that show that the more time you spend on social media, the more it's associated with like depressive and anxious thoughts. But, you know, it feels like we're still in the early days of doing something about it. It doesn't say using this social media app could be hazardous to your health. We wouldn't let our five-year-old kid smoke a cigarette but might we allow them to post something on social media or use a face filter? Yeah, sure. A lot of people do. And so I think it's just early days of really understanding that. And as technologists, as investors, you know, educators in the field, I think we all have a responsibility to think deeply about it and push for whether it's policy or some kind of corporate social responsibility to talk about these things and to say like, hey, there are associated risks with using this. Use it wisely, use it knowledgeably, use it, use it with a level of sophistication and savviness. And that education has to start young. I mean, I remember like the dare, don't do drug campaign in fifth grade that we did. Maybe something like that needs to exist for technology awareness and savviness. And, and maybe it does. I'm not in elementary school, but it's especially interesting for me as a parent, right? And as a parent of two female children thinking about how do I want them to interact with technology? How will that evolve over time? And what role can and should I play as someone in the field to push it towards a more positive experience for everybody? Yeah. And I think it's something that everyone struggled with in the pandemic. And, you know, definitely on a personal level with the kids, we have the philosophy of like, let's try to minimize screen time. And yeah. it's something that's a challenging balance because my parents just, all they want to do is see her on FaceTime and I we know. just don't want her to look at a screen. So there's always that like, what is the right balance? And then even on the personal side, I noticed in 
the pandemic that I was using Instagram a lot more and started caring more about being on it and just totally it's something that didn't bring joy to me or you know one of the values that I have is like being positive and another is being present and I felt that it was actually like totally contrary to my values mm. so I did mm. the whole like full on delete and I feel so much better for it but I think there's surprisingly not a lot of dialogue out there around maybe there's somewhat of awareness like with Facebook and Congress but I think yeah. There's not enough of awareness at the ground level of like, what are going to be the impacts of some of the technologies we create? And to your point, you know, what are those potential risk factors and how do you get on top of that earlier? Yeah, I've heard Brian Chesky talk about stakeholder capitalism and conscious capitalism. And I have hope because I do think that leaders such as yourself, and by the way, you are such a positive and present person, so you're nailing it. But, you know, the more people in power and people in influence think this way, give this way, act this way, I think we can really change it. I mean, you know, for instance, a couple months ago, I saw that One Medical was acquired by Amazon. And that's really interesting, right? Because Amazon is on so many people's phones and their homes. And what is the corporate social responsibility to now have your healthcare tied in with your Amazon account? What do they know about you and what can they use or what should they not use? And if the main goal is to drive profits, you could argue that they could use healthcare data to give you recommendations that might be addictive to you based on your healthcare. Or you could think that you know the goal should not be to drive maximum profits, but to create a sustainable humanity. And then, of course, that sustained humanity can then go buy more products on Amazon. But it's something I think about a lot. And I think it's exciting to see that like conscious capitalism is coming forth. In fact, I'll show you this Mavron hat that we have, which says, do good. I love it. And our Mavron values, you know, one of our values is profit and purpose. And we really do believe that you can fund, create, build companies that drive profit and also have purpose and also push the world forward in a positive way. And we have a number of B Corps in our portfolio, such as Allbirds and Love Every that are B Corps. And we ourselves are also a B Corp after seeing our own portfolio companies go in that direction. And one of the things that I definitely find with VCs is you really have the potential to make the future. And when you think about some of the challenges out there, if you just by pure selection bias, right, who you decide mm -hmm. to invest in could ultimately change the lives of not only the founders and the employees, but the customers of that business. So how do you think about that? Like, how do you think about, particularly when it comes to healthcare and some impactful areas, you know, what are the trade-offs and What's kind of the thought process, whether it's an art or a science, and thinking about who you're selecting? Yeah, you know, as a part of our diligence process, and especially in healthcare, we want to understand like what are the goals here and what are the ramifications for the consumers, or you know, in the case of healthcare, the patients. And is this company, you know, truly focused on maximizing someone's health and making them feel better and helping them accomplish their healthcare goals? And most often, it's pretty clear to understand from the business and from what the founder is hoping to accomplish. And we've certainly come across businesses where we feel like our values are misaligned with what those business goals are, whether that is something, you know, specifically like prescription medication, which is very nuanced and you have to be careful with, or something around pediatrics and, you know, what is the protocol for this pediatric case? And we've, you know, politely declined because it has not felt completely values aligned for us. You know, and we're lucky enough to have LPs who are also many of our LPs who are also mission and purpose-driven. And so 
that's also something we think about, which is, you know, we're this triangle of there's the VC and our entrepreneurs and also our LPs. And we want to make sure that we are aligned from a values perspective with both of those parts of the pillar. Amazing. And I keep coming back to the quote that you have, right? To do something every day that scares you. When you look at like entrepreneurs and people you're selecting have these kind of vision and values and very strong morals and purpose, do you kind of notice a pattern that, hey, look, I see that these people are pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. I see they're doing something that's scary. And one of those things might be starting their business in their own right. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, I am just eternally grateful for entrepreneurs because, you know, I'm in business because of the founders that exist and the founders who are doing something really scary. And building a company is hard and you're sacrificing so much. And any of these entrepreneurs could go get an amazing job and make good money any, anywhere, pretty much. All these people are super smart, but they're choosing to do something difficult. They're choosing to pave a path that no one has done before. And they're doing really, really hard things. I think it is overlooked how difficult it is to be a founder and the people dynamics that you're navigating. You're hiring people, you're inspiring people. Sadly, you have to fire people. You have to help navigate the interpersonal dynamics between the people in your organization. You have to have tough conversations. I mean, I think people think the hard part about being a founder is like coming up with a cool idea and like driving revenue. But like, sometimes that may be easier than navigating some of the emotional and psychological things that you're dealing with every day. And also like how hard you have to push yourself, right? Like nothing is ever, ever up and to the right. And having the perseverance and grit and tenacity to navigate those ups and downs and not let the ups make you super egotistical and think you're, you know, king or queen of the world, but also not letting the downs making you feel like you just can't go on. So yes, I think founders are doing multiple hard things every single day. And, you know, it's a privilege to be a part of that journey. And when founders are pitching us, like you said, we're investing really, really early. Oftentimes we're betting on a human and an idea and we would rather take market and product risk than person risk. So when we're getting to know a founder, we really want to get to know them. You know, I may go back and say like, what was some activity you did in high school? Tell me about a time you failed in high school. How did you overcome that failure? You know, what is your biggest accomplishment to date? And how did you get to that accomplishment? Who helped you accomplish that thing? Just really want to understand like who they are as a person, because, you know, the market's going to change, the product is probably going to change. And I want to make sure that this person can navigate those changes and have the grit and tenacity to keep pushing. Super inspirational. And I think we did an analysis on what we call digital heroes, but people who are truly innovative. And what we found is that it's actually characteristics that include grit, perseverance, tenacity, Mm -hmm. vision, foresight that really develop and enable the innovators. And it's not, you know, something in their background or an experience, you know, those things are great. But if you have this certain set of characteristics that in many cases can lead to your success. And a lot of what we're focused on in AppDirect is figuring out from an impact perspective, how do you provide equal access and equal opportunity for people to access the technology so they can make this transformational change? And Mm. I think that we still have a ways to go at being able to enable those who seek the opportunity to realize like, hey, I could be that 17-year-old who could then end up you know, founding a mental health startup that's going to change a lot of people. And unfortunately, I find that the access to that, not just the education or the technology, but really to that confidence, and we're bringing it full circle to the beginning of the conversation, right? I think so many people just don't have access to feel confident or to feel supported to do something, you know, as crazy or inspirational as things that you're doing or your founders are doing. So what advice would you have to that person who may be in high school or even earlier that may have an idea, but may lack the 
connectivity or the confidence to be able to make it happen? That's a tough question. And I can totally empathize with people are coming from so many different backgrounds, so many different resources or lack thereof at their disposal. And, you know, what can they tap into? Which makes me say, like, at the end of the day, it's tapping into yourself. You know, everyone's going to have a different set of resources. I was lucky enough to have incredibly supportive parents, a really good high school, and the opportunity for all these things to really come together to make me who I am today. But unfortunately, not everyone has that. But that belief in yourself and your own capability, doing small things every day that push your capability a little bit more can make a huge difference. Incredible. Well, super inspirational. And I can only imagine traveling to India with two kids and then setting the goal of the marathon and must have felt great (laughs) to complete. But I really appreciate the time. As always, incredible connecting. And thanks for sharing your passion with all of our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. This was awesome. Thanks for listening to Decoding Digital. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player. To learn more, visit decodingdigital.com. Until next time.